so grateful for everything that you've done and everything that you've given us. We ask you that you would lead us now uh, in your word and lead us um, by your spirit, by your heart, by the, the nature of who you are. And we thank you. We're so grateful for you. In Jesus' name we pray. tonight at the second of our um, Revelation studies, and um, we're going to move through this one pretty quickly. Uh, so let's um, begin with our Apostles' Creed, and we'll read this together aloud. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, Amber Dean, if you would be so kind as to help me pass these out this evening. Thank you. So tonight we are um, talking about the rapture. And um, we're going to try to do this pretty quickly. Um, Josh and I are uh, going to be heading to Indianapolis as soon as we're done. Um, and we pray tonight at 9 o'clock. So... We're going to try to wrap this up in about 35 minutes or so. Um, Tosh is my uh, official timekeeper, um, and so she's going to, uh, it's like the Grammys, she's going to start playing the music if the speeches went too long. She's just going to turn the, the end of the speech music up, and, uh, and then Dan uh, is here so he can get the hook if necessary. That's the last resort uh, to, to wrap things up. Um, we're not uh, live streaming tonight, but we are going to be having this available on podcast. And so um, if you, as we go through this quickly, um, if you need to reference it, it is available on podcast. And then also, and finally, we're not going to be doing Q&A tonight um, due to time constraints. But I think what we're going to do is we're going to do a Q&A um, probably following next week. In some way, we're going to do a Q&A that encompasses all of this stuff. So we're probably just going to do a Thursday night Q&A that's going to be about all this stuff. Um, so if you have questions tonight as we go through this, please write them down because those are important. Um, but uh, we're not going to take time at the conclusion like we have been doing. So tonight we're talking about the rapture. Primarily we're going to discuss the short version of what the Bible says and what it doesn't. Then hopefully... If we're still here in a few weeks, we're going to discuss the biblical view of resurrection. I feel like we must start here. There's only one R word in the Bible. The only R word in the Bible is resurrection. Never rapture. It's Resurrection is used over 40 times throughout the Bible. You don't find the word rapture once. In fact... To 
even find the key in the Bible, you actually have to work to read rapture into the text. I'll try to pose a few thoughts about what the coming of Christ might mean, but quite frankly, even that is difficult because so many elements, uh, there are so many elements, excuse me, where the talons of what I will call left-behind theology are systematically deep in our culture. We have to remember that in the scope of orthodoxy, this theology is very young. Most of our eschatology, rapture-type theology, end-of-days theology, is very, very, very young. In fact, as in, in, in 500 years, when they look back at church history, much like we do now, it's, it's honestly going to be a blip on the radar of church theology. In fact, it's going to be a shooting star in the sky that they kind of go, what in the heck were wrong with those people? And we answer, I don't really know. But it's that short of a time period when in the scope of the last 2,000 years, post-Christ, of what the churches believe, we've only believed this thought for about 30, 40, 50, 60 years in the way we believe it now. So, it, it really does begin um, in the 70s with the book Late Great Planet Earth. Um, I looked the other day. It's actually still selling very, very well. Uh, believe it or not, people are still buying what Hal Lindsey is selling. Um, that snake oil stuff still apparently finds a place on the market. Um, but the reality of it is um, that idea is it, it, it is something that he kind of perpetuated into the common theme of the church, and then as if it was finally beginning to die out, then in the 90s and early 2000s, along comes Tim LaHaye and Left Behind, and it gives it that great old shot of adrenaline that keeps its heart pumping. This has opened the door for a disastrous gospel um, that is distorted and rooted in fear and terror, but somehow captivates the masochist in all of us. And while time itself has debunked most of late great planet Earth, we allow its framework to continue to carry on. An example is the Revelation 9 passage, where we're not going to get into this tonight, but Revelation 9 is the passage where, if you remember, the, the great locust beasts are released from the abyss, and it says that they have lion teeth and mane like horses and armor on them, and they look like a mixture of, a, of, of uh, American gladiator and locust and lion. And when we read this in the text, it's a very vivid telling in Revelation 9, but what we find is how Hal Lindsey says in the 70s that that, were the, that was the helicopters that were being sent in to Vietnam during the war. Because if you remember, it was all going to end. And so it's amazing to me that was so specific, explicit, overt, wrong theology interpretation that has since passed us by, we still allow the framework of what he was suggesting to remain. And so what happens is that idea um, passes us by. I don't know if you noticed. We're still here. 
So the 70s weren't the end of it. The challenge is much deeper, though. You see, after Hal Lindsey opened the door, it was followed by people like John MacArthur and that, that left-behind theology that then further said that the locusts that John, uh, excuse me, that Hal Lindsey thought were these um, helicopters sent into Vietnam that was the world war that was going to end all wars and usher in the apocalypse and the rapture and the return of Christ, what uh, uh, John MacArthur and what Tim LaHaye and what these other guys have done is they made it full-on superpower demons that were released by God in the earth. So they actually now take this a further step and say that the locusts that are released in the earth are superpower demons that are naturally released in the earth and going around inflicting pain on people. Because that's how God works. You see, the, this is the effect of bad eschatology. Rapture theology or the idea of the taking away of the church has only been around since the mid-1800s. During that time, I, I want to say that again, mid-1800s, it's not very long. During that time, a man named J.N. Darby began teaching about the end-time rapture. He had a very negative view of the church and actually said, it is positively stated that the church would fail and become as bad as heathenism. He believed that his church group was the only good news left. They actually believed that in the 1800s that the church had experienced a 1600-year uh, 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 yeah, dark age where everybody went to hell. Everybody was apostate. Everybody was turned over to reprobate minds. But thank God they came alive. And so this is the guy that was the first one that began to give us rapture theology. And J.N. Darby began to preach, and he believed that this, uh, they reached into a place in the mid-1800s and, and believed they were living in a modern-day judging of the churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. So he felt that the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were happening right then and there. So he believed that the revelation was already happening. So here's a real mess. If Darby was actually alive today, the guy that came up with the rapture theology in the first place, he would dispute that it's not real because it should have already happened. Darby saw history as a progressive revelation, and his system sought to explain the stages in God's redemptive plan for the universe. What separated Darby's dispensationalism was his novel method of biblical interpretation, which consisted of strict literalism, the absolute separation of Israel and the church into two distinct peoples of God, and the separation of the rapture or the catching away of the church from Christ's second coming. At the rapture, he said, Christ will come for his saints, and at the second coming, he will come with his saints. His views began to, has anybody ever heard anything like that? He, the saints go up, thousand, how many people have heard dispensationalism? Thousand year reign, then you've got the, the devils loose on the earth. Where's that? Okay, this is the guy that came up with that stuff. It's called dispensationalism, and it's just absolutely blatantly, flagrantly not biblical. Flagrantly not biblical. 
his views began to gain traction with a group called the Plymouth, and, and, and he started a group called the Plymouth Brethren. We don't have time to get into that, but Darby's view also found the heart of a man named C.I. Schofield, who would include this dispensationalism and literalist view complete with the rapture in his Schofield Bible. This caused rapture theology to take hold in the 1900s, leaving us to, to assume it's been here all along. The other challenge with the 1900s when it took hold was the age of awakening. There was ideas, and we wanted words, and we wanted literalism, and we wanted exclamations, and we were innovating, and we were doing things, and we were understanding things. So what it became is it was the age of understanding where we had to say, this is how it fits. And all it took was one guy to get ticked off at the church to get us this, and another guy that said, I want to I frame the Bible around this narrative. And then here we are, years later, that's all we've ever known. All this led to what N.T. Wright calls the American obsession with the rapture version of the second coming of Christ. To put some of this directly, contrary to what we've been told, Jesus never said anything about his return. Jesus never talks about it. Number one, every time he mentions the Son of Man coming in the clouds, those of you who have studied the scripture are immediately going, well, wait a minute. I remember he said, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Every time he says that, he's referencing the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 uses this terminology to speak of the vindication of the Messiah and his suffering. The coming in the clouds reference in Daniel is always an upward movement, never a downward movement. It's an ascension not a descension. And in context, Jesus always references this with his death, resurrection, and the vindication that would take place when he was raised from the dead. So the Son of Man coming in the clouds is the terminology and the framework that Jesus used that was vindicating his death by his resurrection. Because if we're being really, really honest, the people he was talking to, remember he said, you'll not die before you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And so we've had to ask questions like, how were the disciples not confused when the rapture didn't happen to them? Because they didn't think he was talking about the rapture. They knew he was talking about the vindication of his resurrection and the ascension in the clouds that happened afterwards. That's number one. Number two. The parables Jesus told about the master of the house going away for a while. We assume that's rapture theology. While the parable, as an example, the parable of the talents. Remember the parable of the talents. He gave to his servants several talents. The king went away for a while. The master of the house went away for a while. And then he returned and he judged how they had dealt with the talents. Remember that? Or the guy that, that left the country and gave them charge over the field, and he returned, and he was mad at them. He was upset. He was angry because they didn't deal well with what they were given charge for. What we have to understand is this was not seen by the listener 
as second coming parables. In the Jewish culture, the listeners, first of all, had no concept of a second coming. So it couldn't have been viewed that way. They had no framework for that to be the way they would interpret it, and so they wouldn't have thought that way. But number two, and even more so, they belong in a context of the Jewish world in first century where everyone would hear the story to be about God himself having left Israel and the temple during the time of exile and coming back through the Messiah, Jesus, as the prophet said he would. So the whole context of the king or the master, the Lord, giving talents to people and giving them charge to be stewards of that while he was away always was a contextual um, parable about God being separate from Israel and about their belief that he would return as the Messiah to redeem them. So Jesus, the reason we use that parable, because he was saying, I'm it. It would have made no sense to tell first century Jews, I'm going to come back in the year, you know, 2025. It would make no sense. There'd be no point in that. So remember, Jesus' life was following a 400-year period where the people felt God had left them. There was no prophecy or real interaction with the person of God. So between Malachi and the Gospels, we know there was a 400-year interim period called the, called the Dark Ages, where God didn't interact with people, where they didn't experience or feel Him in that way. He didn't speak to them. There was no prophecy. So what He's talking about is, I'm here. What have you done with what's mine? That's the charge. So, now let's get on to some rapid fire. Now the good stuff. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and another verse in 1 Corinthians are really the entire framework of rapture theology. Those two verses, those two passages are where we get all of this stuff. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Let's quickly read this. But I would that you would not be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, ye that sorrow not, even as those that have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For we say this unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming, or parousia, which that's going to be important, of the Lord, shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. How many times have we heard this one, right? So he will descend from heaven with a shout. Uh, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. So that's the, or his lips on the trump. I grew up waiting to hear a trumpet call. Based on one phrase in the entire Bible. And with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And boy, we've done our darndest to comfort one another with those words. But in the midst of comforting one another, we've absolutely gained everyone else. It's amazing how what's comforting for one person is condemnation and judgment for the other. So... What we find within this passage, we have to start with understanding the theme that Paul is trying to relay. 
when it references in verse 15, the Lord returning or coming, Paul uses as parousia. Parousia is a very important word because there's lots and lots and lots of words about somebody coming or returning. There's lots of words that could have been used. He specifically chose a word that was absolutely loaded and rife with meaning and picture to the culture of that time. And that's one of the things that Paul was best at. Paul loved vivid picture. He would dabble in that kind of thing, almost like John the Revelator would, where he would kind of create a picture with his words. And so we have to understand that theme. This word is often translated coming, but it literally means presence, meaning the presence of something as opposed to the absence of it. There were two cultural meanings of this word at the time it was used. Number one, when someone felt the supernatural power or presence of God, they would use parousia. It was often used to define the atmosphere when a healing took place. So when they felt the presence of God or felt a healing had taken place, they said, did you feel the parousia? Which just means the atmosphere of his presence. The room was empty or he was absent and then his presence came and that was the atmosphere that cultivated or made the way for the divine or the miracle to invade the earth. So they would use this word. It was also used to define the atmosphere of deliverance, restoration, or and even used regarding the liberation of Israel from Egyptian oppression. So they would say, they when they would talk, the Greeks, when they would talk about, um, or in Greco-Roman days, when the Hebrew people would speak of their deliverance from Egyptian oppression and bondage, they would regard that as a parousia. It was a liberation. It was a healing. It was a res restoration where God came near to them. And that's why they had such deliverer language, which is, this is a side note, but that's the coolest thing about our God. Do you realize he's the first God that was a deliverer? Our God is the first God in all of time that, that people can find, and anthropologists can find, that was known as deliverer. That's huge. So the second reference to Perusia referenced when a person of high rank makes a visit to a colony or province. This was most uh, relatedly seen by a visit from the emperor or king to one of his outer-reaching lands. So when Paul uses parousia, let's put that together and think about what he might have been trying to show them. He was trying to tell them that the coming of the Lord was going to, that the coming of Jesus, that they worshipped, first of all, that they worshipped, he was near in spirit but absent in body, but one day he would be present in body with them, and then the whole world would suddenly be transformed by the presence of his bodily um, um, filling, if you will. Second, he would have been saying that Jesus, who was the rightful emperor, remember Paul was a Roman of Romans, so he would have used emperor kind of language to say that Jesus was the rightful emperor of the entire world and was going to come in the same way that Caesar would come and rule this world in person. Especially in places like Thessalonica and Corinth, we 
these two churches he writes in this language to because they were outer-reaching provinces of Rome. So in the outer-reaching provinces of Rome, you knew that you were ruled by an emperor, but you never saw the emperor. Every few years, the emperor would make a visit to your province. And what they would do is they would stage these parades. In fact, this is what Jesus was messing with whenever he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was, he was thumbing a nose at Caesar's parades. And what happens is that the, the, the emperor would come into the province, come into the city, and they would all run out to meet him in the countryside because it would have been rude to greet him inside the city. They would run out into the country to meet him and then walk with him to escort him into the city. This becomes really interesting because they would all prepare for the emperor to come. In fact, years before his arrival, they would send ambassadors to these provinces and they would begin to change things like architecture. They would begin to change things like the dialect and the culture and the food so that when the emperor arrived, it would resemble home for him and feel comfortable. Paul uses this theory or this language whenever he references that we're ambassadors for Christ, that we're literally making this earth a kingdom ready for the king. So when Paul says parousia, he's referencing that. This perfectly pairs with the theme that's found in Revelation, which says Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. We prepare a place for him to inhabit every time we pray, as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come here as it is there. So the reason Paul said we'll be caught up in the clouds is because he's giving picture to the fact that we'll go out to meet him just as they would go out to meet the emperor when he came and that we would walk with him into the city. It has nothing to do because there's so many, it, it, it literally falls upon itself as soon as you start saying that it, it's literal because then there's questions like, well, wait a minute, so is he not staying? Why are we coming into the clouds? What? There's no other ascension language. And he, when did he learn to fly? Like, is, it, is your body the anti-gravity device that keeps your spirit tied to the ground? And as soon as that now, and if that's the case, if that's the case, then where do all the bodies go? Because your bodies are just falling off onto the ground. So there's dead bodies everywhere or empty shells, as I just thought, everywhere because your spirit's shooting out. That doesn't make any sense. It's not what he's trying to say. He's painting a picture about the parousia, the presence of the true king of the earth returning, that we meet him to usher him in, and we, we welcome him in every single day as we pray. The same word parousia is used in 1 Corinthians 15. This context starts in verse 23, um, and, and we don't have time to go through those two verses, but just know in verse 23, he begins by saying, every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards his coming. Then will come the end that comes with the kingdom. 
The Father will give him all authority and power, for he must reign and put all enemies under his feet. And notice this last language. And all things will be subject to him. Verse 28. And when all things are subjected or subdued by him, the Son will put all things under him, that God will then be all and in all. That leads us to the last part of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Here it is again. And in this thing, for our uncorruptible, or a corruptible must put on uncorruptible, that you must in mortality be changed into immortality, all this kind of stuff. So we put these together, but to summarize this thought from Paul, he is saying that there's a time coming when Jesus will be established as Lord of all. That's the first concept. That is the point of what Paul is trying to make. And at that point, the enemies of Jesus, Paul is speaking of systems, not people. Anytime in the Bible it references enemies, it's always systems, never people. There is no person who's an enemy of God. It's just that simple. Because God is them, and he can't be an enemy of himself. So, at that point, the enemies of Jesus, the systems will be put under his rule. The culmination of this is that God will be all in all. But notice that Paul explains this resurrection of the dead. Then he addresses those that are alive. I've completely missed this my entire life. Notice, they will be changed, which is the word for transfigured, into the glorious body like Christ was. The language he uses in Thessalonians is the same position as Corinthians. It's always about the return to Christ, uh, uh, excuse me, of Christ to the earth and the establishment of his kingdom. If you're asking, why does he use the coming in the clouds picture? I would suggest that we remember in Thessalonians, Paul uses three different other analogies that somehow we've completely ignored. So we think we see the coming in the clouds and we just stop reading there. But in the same context in Thessalonians, he also references that when Jesus comes, he comes like a thief in the night. How many times have you heard that? The thief in the night is just simply saying, we don't know when this is going to happen. There's no, there's no awareness of this. That doesn't mean, so that because he's a thief in the night, we assume that it's scary. He's not abandoning that's coming to break in and burglarize your home. He's just saying you don't know when it's going to happen. The second language, he uses is the woman in labor. There are always things happening beneath the surface. He's saying that this woman who's become pregnant, and you can't see the baby as it is, but it's there. And the third thing, make sure that you're ready and prepared. Don't, and he uses this great language. And he says, more or less, don't try to get dressed in your armor while you're drunk. I love that. I think that's my favorite one. I'd like to use that from now on till the end of days. Folks, just make sure you're ready for whatever it is God wants to do. Don't try to put on your armor while you're drunk. But that's what Paul says. But we pick on the one thing about the clouds. So we have keyed into the metaphors of Paul and absolutely missed the point. Matthew 24 is another example of reading into the text something that's not there. Interestingly, none of the major rapture teachers mention this um, when referencing this passage. Matthew 24 is that two people are in a field in the day of the Lord, one's taken, one not. Two people are walking down a highway. 
So even the guys that teach about the rapture don't use this passage to talk about the rapture. In fact, there's no credible theologian today or even the guys like Darby that came up with this rapture stuff that said that this verse was talking about the rapture. It's not about the rapture. So where did they pull this thought? Actually, the earliest we can find it was in American culture in the 70s. But the clearest definition was in a very popular song by a man named Larry Norman. Larry Norman wrote a song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. In fact, it was further popularized by Nancy Kroc in the late 90s, early 2000s. And they begin to sing the song that says, Two men are walking, one is taken, I wish we'd all been ready. This is the first time that we can find, that I can find anyway, that that Matthew 24 was relegated to the rapture. But it gets interjected into our culture, and before we know it, it's what we think. So 1 Thessalonians paints this incredible picture of what it's actually supposed to mean when the emperor, when the king comes to his kingdom. Because a kingdom without a king is not a kingdom. So he comes and returns, and meeting him in the clouds is not anything that's saying we're going to shoot up there. He's just saying when he comes, and he's referencing it to a people who knew exactly what it would be like for the emperor to visit. He references them and says, don't you understand what this is going to be like? You're going to run out and welcome him in. And he's using that kind of language. And once he comes in, his presence will be there forever. And then he also uses parousia because he's trying to define for them that even though they can feel Jesus in spirit because he's with us now, he's going to be with us in body. And that messes with us. But he's going to be in body. I don't know what that's going to look like. I also don't know what it's going to look like for us to be in body. Because you do realize that in 1 Corinthians, what Paul is trying to deal with is the, the dead in Christ will be raised. Those that are alive, our bodies will be changed and transfigured into our heavenly bodies. The last thing I'm going to say about this, because we don't have time to talk about resurrection today, but pagan theologies are the ones that started the thought that our spirits go on forever and our spirits are what is raised in eternal. It's not biblical. It's never been biblical. When Jesus is raised from the dead, when he's resurrected, he's the, he is the primary example of what the rapture is going to look like. You'll be like him, right? That's what it says. Let me ask you, when she saw him as a gardener, when Thomas saw his hands, when he appeared, what was it? Did Thomas touch him? I don't know the last time you've touched a spirit, but... And then he even talks about my heavenly body. Don't touch me yet because my heavenly body, I've not ascended. I don't have my heavenly body yet. There's something that happens, and I don't know what it is. I, 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 I don't know that I fully – I know that I don't fully understand it, but I know what it's not. So let's read uh, and close with this great passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Celebrate with praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has shown us his extravagant mercy. 
first foundation of mercy has given us new life, we're reborn to experience a living, energetic hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We are reborn because of his resurrection. We, verse 4, are reborn into perfect inheritance that can never perish or be defiled and never diminish. It's promised and preserved forever in the heavenly realms for you through the faith and mighty power of God constantly, or though, excuse me, it, God constantly guards us until our full salvation is ready to be revealed at that time. May the thought of this cause you to jump for joy. But though lately you've had to put up with the grief of many trials, but these only reveal the sterling core of your faith, which is far more valuable than gold that perishes, for even gold is refined by fire. Your authentic faith will result in more praise, glory, and honor when Jesus, the anointed one, is revealed. You love him passionately, although you didn't see him, but through believing in him, you are saturated with ecstatic joy indescribably sublime and immersed in glory. For you are reaping the harvest of your faith, the full salvation promised you, your soul is grateful for. Because of his resurrection, we are reborn. It's just that simple. So we don't have to put a hope in something that is literally crammed into key passages in the Bible. It is Whoever first came up with it literally had to use a crowbar to fit it into the scriptures because it's just not there. And yet that's what a lot of our hope is that either. In fact, one of the things that I've heard people saying frequently now is because the days are so bad around us that they're not going to die. I know I'm going to be raptured out of here before I even get to choose my body. If that is our hope, we've got an issue with hope. said, the glory of God is man fully alive. If Jesus is intent to come and show us what humans have, can really be like, what this life can really be like, and within that, if, it, if we're living in hope, we don't have to believe that somehow there's going to be some rocket ship, I don't know, some escalator thought, and, and, and it's caused us to forgo real transformation in an attempt to embrace a doctrine and a theology of escapism. And it has opened up the door for so many other damnable and, and absolutely destructive thoughts. So we have this hope that we're going to welcome his kingdom. And we have this hope that he's going to come. And I don't know that it's going to be in my lifetime. I just don't. I don't know, and I don't know that that um, that I'll. I don't know that I know there's going to be an event. I'll put it that way. But if you want to know my honest opinion, it's the last thing I'll say. I do really feel like that we're following the arc of His kingdom coming, and I think what's going to happen is His kingdom is going to come more and more and more and more and more, and at some point. What's here is going to be so close to what's there, he will be here with us. I don't know that he's got a calendar with a date circled on it. Or it's like, it's like drawing a number out of a hat. 
or if just all of a sudden the father's going to wake up one day to say, all right, Jesus, today's the day for you to come allow heaven to come. I don't think that's it. I think that heaven and earth operate in such parallels that what's going to happen is that it begins to invade earth. And it, in some ways, it's almost as if they're intersecting to such a strong degree that the atmosphere of heaven is going to have intersected with earth so much that he's just going to be here. Maybe. Maybe not. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that our hope and that our celebration, that our belief is that the fountain of mercy that has given us new life is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is now the cosmic Christ. He is the Christ that is all and in all. He is the Christ that holds all things together. He is the Christ that is in every one of us and in everyone else at the same time. And so, Father, help us to understand and to walk in the reality of this hope and to live it out daily not looking for some event that's going to happen in the eastern sky, praying that everybody is going to see it and is going to get CNN gives it coverage. But that, Father, whatever it is that you're doing, my focus is to make the place ready for you to come. Help me to be that ambassador. Help us to be that ambassador that we recognize your presence with us, but more and more we're making this place look like home for you to where in many ways earth resembles heaven so closely that they begin to intersect. Help us, Father, to live that. And we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.